Chapter One of Find the Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter One Prologue in which is explained how an architectural draftsman came to possess three sets of names before he was twenty-one, and how a portrait disturbed him. Who was Belle Charmion? If you really care to know, as John Fenton did, you must go with him on his quest, hither and yon over New York, into strange houses and through side streets at midnight, a shuttle in the secret loom of fate, weaving in and out through many colored threads until the pattern of the mystery is made clear for the warp of his strange adventurous career love and beauty and diamonds for the woof some few cross currents of crime and misery there in brief is the web of his drama so if you ask for such diversion the narrative must perforce begin with a prelude that you may make acquaintance with the hero and see what manner of youth and temperament sped him on his way to explain why an engineer's draughtsman of no especial talent should at twenty-one have already had three sets of names the review of his history should be divided into five epochs the first a prehistoric era that of his babyhood was in his memory a mere blur of confused faded pictures amongst which stood out one vivid sharp recollection a scene on a ferry-boat swept by keen brisk winds cool under a watery spring sun he was playing on deck with a little yellow-haired girl under the careless supervision of two indefinite elders with a small boy's insistence he was teasing his companion clutching at a gold heart-shaped locket with a white star which hung about her neck she pulled away from him the chain broke and she ran crying to her guardian leaving the locket in his hands the second epoch that of his childhood between the ages of four and eight was somewhat more clear in his mind although there were many gaps he could never account for he was living in south boston and now his name was michael o'shea his scarlet hair had gained for him amongst the children of his street the easy soubriquet of ready and at first he had not consented to the name without many savage protests living with an uncle and an aunt the o'sheas hard by the blind asylum his life was a street urchin's career of conflict and roving with intermittent enforced sessions at the primary school he roamed from the point to the dover street bridge he knew the docks to the last pile from the land and from the water he felt too often the missile of an opponent gang a snowball enclosing a rock of his lineage he heard only that his mother had been a mill-hand in fitchburg and that his father had died at sea this information embroidered by diverse details which little by little he perceived as lies was always told him with winks and smiles as if concealed within their falsehoods was some consummate joke he grew tired of questioning finally and brooded sullenly over the puzzle of his birth 
when he was eight years old the o'sheas with a shiny black valise and a paper-covered trunk moved to new york they took two rooms in a tenement on the east side a place of multitudinous fire escapes waving blankets screaming children and dented ash-barrels but in that place reddy o'shea was not to stay long the day after moving in while mrs o'shea was unpacking the trunk and mangus o'shea was shaving at a broken triangle of mirror stuck in the window the boy's eyes caught a shiny something in an open cardboard box in wonder with a queer sickish feeling of recognition he stooped down and took it a little golden heart with a star of white stones on the cover strange memories as if of a long-forgotten dream stirred him uneasily as he handled it the next moment he was knocked down by a violent cuff on the ear and mangus o'shea stood over him his small reddish eyes blazing ugly with anger his snarling lips parted revealing a broken row of little black teeth horribly distinct in the middle of his lathered face look at what you've done now he exclaimed to his wife after four years av hidin and pullin the wool over his eyes it'll be your fault now if he begins to prick up his ears why didn't ye lock it up from him he turned to the boy and shook a great scarred hairy fist if i catch you snooping round after things again i'll break every rib in your body and mind ye that he struck reddy again viciously to enforce the warning and returned to his shaving no sooner had he turned his back than the boy slipped out ran down the narrow dirty stairs of the tenement and was out on the street he hurried downtown as fast as his legs would carry him there followed two days of wandering starvation cold he crossed the brooklyn bridge and lost himself in a wilderness of narrow streets with rows of dreary-looking houses when dr hopbottom found him he was only half conscious the third epoch that of his adolescence was the wretchedest of all a household drudge enslaved by mrs hopbottom for domestic assistance washing dishes sweeping cooking a hundred other degradingly feminine tasks which went even to sewing and darning the doctor's woollen socks joe hopbottom as he was now called almost forgot that he was a boy he lived in squalor gnawing scraps in the kitchen scolded by mrs hopbottom continually and continually preached at by the doctor a hoary old hypocrite whose face joe loathed the doctor's favorite occupation was to lecture the boy on the simple life plain living and high thinking joe he would say his cheeks bulging with mince pie or suet pudding don't make your belly your god as he shoveled in loaded knifefuls of hot pork the doctor's face was greasy with exuding fat his hands were pudgy manners make the man joe not clothes he often said to his miserable ragged ward as he strung a heavy gold watch-chain across his embroidered waistcoat i think that suit of yours will do another year with a little brushing and so it went 
the doctor did not drink or swear he had all the virtues of the pharisees including a goat's beard but for every worldly vice he had an efficient substitute instead of alcohol he used coffee with an equally stimulating effect injecting it under his skin till he was as yellow as a moor in the place of profanity he made use of highly original but perfectly adequate diction composed of scientific terms to poor terrified joe this jargon seemed worse than any oaths sanctified by custom you toxo leucocyte he would exclaim to the boy what do you want to make a fennel tribrompropionic hypotenuse of yourself for to such mysterious apostrophes joe could make no answer only once did he see mangus o'shea that was when he went to new york with a doctor to attend the meeting of a committee investigating the white slave traffic they were walking up the bowery the doctor absorbed in the theatrical posters when the irishman passed them he stopped and stared joe turning around fearfully to see if he had been observed caught o'shea's eager red eyes upon him he clung to the doctor's hands and urged him forward dr hopbottom reluctantly resumed his journey at the next stand bearing the picture of pulchritude's picciorino burlesquers the boy turned round and saw that o'shea had followed at canal street he was lost in the crowd joe dreamed of him for seven nights running but then a new interest diverted his thoughts rummaging in the dusty attic one day while mrs hopbottom was at her sewing circle joe discovered some old numbers of the studio left by a lodger and between his washings and his darnings he pored over wonderful photographs of paintings and sculpture hiding the book under the eaves when he went back to work at night when he had a few moments to himself he copied the pictures with pencil patiently lovingly abominably the hop-bottoms did at least permit him an education and he had almost finished his course at the high school before the crash came the studio and a boy in his own class brought on the crisis his friend was a member of a private life class which rented a studio on tuesday and thursday evenings hired an inexpressibly ugly model and drew therefrom in charcoal the class was composed mainly of architects ambitious draughtsmen and with his friend's influence joe was permitted to join finding money for paper and charcoal and board seemed at first impossible but the sale of old rags and bottles filched from the hop-bottom cellar at last sufficed for the purchase of his material and the men allowed him to attend for a while gratis the boy was already a personable good-natured youth and soon became popular his explanation of his absence was that he was attending a bible class at the y m c a his industry was great if not his talent by the time he was sixteen years old a fat roll of terrible studies from the nude was hidden away in the attic joe had become so enthusiastic in the pursuit of art that he had almost forgotten the chaste point of view of the philistines 
Dr. Hopbottom still preached asceticism for others, gesticulating with his pie, and still his fat increased. Still he preached the simple life, the renunciation of the flesh, the temptation of the senses. One night Joe and his friend left a vaudeville theater in shocked disgust at the row of vulgar half-clad females who were performing a suggestive burlesque. As he went out, he saw Dr. Hopbottom's unctuous, grinning face in the audience, his eyes devouring the charms of the actresses. It was the next morning the explosion came. Mrs. Hopbottom, climbing upstairs for a spring cleaning, discovered Joe's charcoal studies from the nude. There was a hysterical tumult, lightnings of her flashing eye, thunder of her expostulation, a storm of tattered charcoal drawings. Joe put his head through the doorway to find the cause of her temper. With his ear in one hand and the sole survivor of his sketches, as a sample of sin in her other, the lady stalked into the doctor's study. His wrath was sublime. Moral precepts, sermonettes, warnings, prayers, reproaches, quotations from the Bible. Timothy 4.12, Leviticus 26.27-29. He invoked pictures of future torment and made a closer inspection of the drawing. He put it away carefully in his desk, waving his wife's itching fingers aside, and invoked heaven, raising his eyebrows. Joe could stand it no longer, told pithily of the previous evening's vaudeville horrors. It was prayer meeting night, then left the doctor and his blazing spouse to fight it out together. He packed a few clothes with deliberation, and walked calmly, happily, back across the brooklyn bridge he was free a great peace was in his soul halfway across he wafted a gorgeous resolution forth upon the breeze the loathly name of hopbottom sailed from his body never to return stealing a new one from the first theatrical billboard he passed he entered new york as john fenton so began his youth we may pass lightly over the next five years of his life. He had been trained to take hard knocks. He had industry and a savor of humor. He made his way. Some of his draftsman friends busied themselves for him, and he soon found a position as an office boy for a firm of architects. Between his petty duties he practiced lettering, copied the orders, made blueprints and tracings. What he lacked in genius he made up in determination, and at the age of twenty-one he earned eighteen dollars a week, and by frugality and a cheap Harlem lodging-house saved the half of it. The red of his hair had toned to a deep auburn. Gymnasium work, long walks and simple living had improved his looks till many a girl's eyes gave him a second glance as he passed. He had, even in his obscurity, the habits of a gentleman, and a way of wearing his ready-made clothes that took off the curse of cheapness. His landlady was wont to gossip over his charms and his aristocratic manners. She let many a room on the strength of them. Once, five or six years after he had escaped from Brooklyn, 
he came upon dr hopbottom in a penny arcade the doctor was looking into a moving picture machine bearing the legend the story of an artist's model he was turning the crank slowly very slowly something arrested his attention he looked up with a guilty face good morning said john affably wondering why he had ever feared this senile old fool you correlated dimorphic appendix you what are you doing some blastodermic corollarious mischief i suppose the doctor tried to look dignified oh i'm going in for architecture i see you're at your old game though said john and giving him a withering smile passed on and so at last we come to the picture which inaugurated john fenton's fifth epoch lucky for men that all have not the same tastes lucky for men that each chooses his own type of beauty lucky that no one woman can please all men else every woman might be a helen of troy and war would rage amongst men over her everlastingly unlucky for melton's magazine however that there were not more john fenton's to mob the newsstands and buy up a certain edition of that periodical comparatively few men perhaps would call the girl's face pretty most at least would turn the page with small regret but to john fenton the sight of that face was the starting of many emotions in that glance he achieved maturity his youth ended on page two hundred twelve manhood began at page two hundred thirteen he came across the magazine in a friend's studio and not daring to confess how much the picture affected him he sought a chance cut out the page and concealed it under his coat it showed the face of a girl of perhaps twenty years with soft parted hair rolling away from her forehead eyes wide apart under level brows and a smiling mouth at once demure and whimsical so much for the outward aspect beauty however is subjective in john fenton's mind something responded as to a message the secret call of a subconscious desire potent as a magic charm to win that girl he would have ploughed across arctic snows fought his way through tropical jungles chanced peril war or pestilence so much he resolved at first glance when he got the page safely home he smoothed out its wrinkles and studied it perturbed and trembling by a sorry trick of chance some one cutting a paragraph from the opposite side of the page had deleted the name of the girl not till he had had the portrait on his wall for a week not till a new element had begun to creep into its attraction for him did he realize that he had been a fool not to look at the magazine and see its name and date that he might procure an undisfigured copy it was now impossible to trace it and the girl must remain unnamed as he studied it day by day its charm grew more potent something more than the girl's mere physical attraction moved him the romance and mystery of the face became more and more magnetic at first vague and troublesome it at last absorbed him 
it seemed to promise some hidden meaning for him alone the talk of a theosophical fellow-worker at his office began to simmer in his brain had he perchance known this girl in some previous life were their destinies linked had they made karma together in such wise he mused at times the strain on his imagination grew so tense that he would put the picture away and busy himself with prosaic projects some competition for courthouse or pergola but the lady did not long hide her face back she came to his wall again now as expensively framed as a dry point a le etching and again john fenton's thoughts roved on the wings of romance end of chapter one